You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right, well, grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Last week, we we basically walked through an intro to the gospel of Mark and talked a little bit about the uh, the urgency and the the immediacy of the gospel and the kind of way it moves forward uh, quite quickly with a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of action. And we talked a bit about the, um, the fact that this evangelion or this gospel is, is, is kind of a borrowed language from the proclamation of how your life has changed because a king has come. Um, and so Jesus is being proclaimed. We, we can't miss this. He's being proclaimed as a king, not I should say not as a king, but the king, not as a um, prophet, but the prophet and someone we ought to listen to and someone we need to engage with. And what's interesting, you would think a proclamation of a king like this, the king of kings, you think it might take place um, in Jerusalem, in this, the center of, of everything. Maybe it would take place in Rome. But what's interesting is that this adventure, this gospel starts in the desert. Uh, and I would say there's an invitation, I believe, in, in, in these first verses in Mark to meet Jesus in the desert. That's where the gospel of Mark begins. Life is found in the desert when we come to the end of ourselves. It's not by accident that John called people out into the wilderness into a desert for repentance. Like today, cities were, were bustling, they were noisy. They were full of, of daily chores, of, of distractions. And we can say that today, escape from distraction is, is impossible without, without active militant removal of those things. And so right, right from the beginning of Mark's gospel, we get the idea that he's, he is announcing something massive. This, this gospel, this good news, this proclamation is about God's Christ or his, his Messiah. So go ahead and look, take a look at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, the word of God to us today. It says, the beginning of the gospel, the evangelion, the, the announcement of the king, of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appearing, uh, John appeared, that's John the Baptist. Uh, he appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, there's that word, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately, immediately, drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus, I pray that as we uh, listen to your word this morning, uh, and we uh, 
take in um, the, the words that you gave to your follower, John, that 2,000 years ago, that we, our hearts and our minds would be open to what he would want to say to us today. Amen. Well, you know, if, if you've been to, to Israel, that to say, to say wilderness is maybe a bit of a, a misnomer for those of us who live in BC, Canada, or, or near a forest of any kind, and that uh, kind of that kind of understanding would have us creating, you know, an interesting image of what wilderness is. Where our idea of wilderness might be, uh, you know, a green-covered mountaintop and a and a bald eagle flying, and, and maybe uh, you know. A, an American flag superimposed over this guy. Um, but John is crying out in what you and I would probably not call wilderness. We might call it a desert. And, uh, and, and my hope is that you and I would see that being in the desert is actually a good thing. Um, we often associate it with, with death and, uh, and thirst. But being in the desert is actually a good thing. And that's because, uh, because of God, we can find life in the desert. The desert is we f- is where in, in this story we find God's Christ, the Christ. When students of the Hebrew Scripture h- heard that statement, bells would have gone off in their heads. Jesus, the Christ. To mention the Christ is to talk about an ancient promise spoken of in Isaiah, in in Malachi, in in the Psalms of of a king who represented. God. It takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, this, this promise of a, of a Messiah. And not just a king, but the king. And where is he? He's not in a palace. He's in the wilderness. He's out in the desert. He begins his reign and he establishes divine proclamation where? In the desert. This is a different kind of king. He is the son of God, Mark says. Now, and that's a, that's a phrase we are so used to as, as Christians, son of God, that I, I wonder if if we we fail to feel the impact in the ancient world the son of a of a king had all the authority of the king himself so to hear from the son was to hear from the father that he represented he came with the same kind of power and influence and you ought to listen to him just like you would his father and this is important in the gospel of mark and for you and i because if we if we fail to recognize jesus as the son of god we've missed something very important if we miss Jesus as the son of the living God, we miss something. He, he becomes just another God and, a, and another choice, maybe, among many gods. He becomes something that we can kind of just mold into our agenda. He becomes an option. And I think Mark wants us to question whether our conception, our, our concept of who Jesus is as the Christ is shaped by culture or by, by Scripture. It's interesting. Throughout Mark, we're going to see people with their own interpretation of what it means to call Jesus the Christ of God, but who have no concept of what it means to call him the Son of God, to call him one with the Father, to give him the same authority, the respect, the understanding of his power, the same kind of worship as you would give God the Father. And what it's interesting, what we see throughout this gospel is that the spiritual realm, whether it's God or, or demons, unclean spirits, they, they recognize and they refer to Jesus as the Son of God. But no human recognizes or refers to Jesus as the Son of God until the very end of the gospel, when of all people, a Roman centurion, a non-Jew, confesses Jesus as the Son of God. In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, it says, And when the centurion who, who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, speaking of the death of Christ, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so, 
So the question Mark is asking is, are you following Jesus without truly recognizing who he is and responding properly? And like I said uh, last week in my introduction, Mark is most likely writing to Christians who who he's trying to challenge uh, their discipleship and ask them to go deeper in their discipleship to not only call Jesus the Christ but to call to call them them his Lord and his and their and their king and so in Mark's introduction we also see that a response is in order it starts vaguely for us and then it gets a little more focused but Mark begins his gospel by quoting this text from the prophet uh, Isaiah he quotes the words uh, of the prophet, the prophet really who's known best for his promises regarding a, a Christ or, or a Messiah. He's quoting Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5 say, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's interesting. Every every one of the four gospel uses this text to to emphasize that what God is doing through the Christ is not a new story. That the idea of John uh, of of someone coming out and proclaiming that the day of the Lord is coming is not something new. Matthew chapter three verses one to three. Luke three verses one to six. John one. Uh, verse 23, I won't read them all because they're all saying the same thing. They're quoting the same text. All of these put these words in the mouth of John the Baptist. They, they all believe that John the Baptist himself, exactly what John the Baptist believed about himself, that he was the one Isaiah was talking about. And, and the call of John is to step away from everything that you know and come out to the desert. Put down your phone, turn off Netflix, uh, and look to the Christ recognize who he is, press pause on everything that has you distracted, and look, prepare the way of the Lord. And to help you, and this will get your attention, John appears. I mean, where he appears in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and the tone that, that this guy sets. Oh, I mean, what a character John is. I think if, if, like myself, you grew up in Sunday school, you might have this really almost a clean-cut version of of John who who buys his his uh, camel hair at the Gap and it's all you know finely tailored and he's got a really nice uh, red headband and dude works out. But I wonder I wonder if today maybe Jason Momoa with his with his long hair and kind of rugged look might might be close. Um, but but don't skip over John too quickly. He, he's not a footnote. He's not a, a distraction to the son of God. He's he's making sure you understand who Jesus is. And with Jesus comes a clash of kingdoms. The desert is where we are faced with our allegiances. The wrong allegiance will lead to destruction. It, it was true of Israel running after other gods with, with lying stories instead of the one true God and his, his life-giving story all throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. And it's true for you and for me when our, when our ultimate allegiance is to the job, the, our relationship, maybe our political take. All of those things will turn on us. They are all beasts that will turn on us. John invites us to the desert for clarity. For refreshment, for a for a choice, John is described as a prophet who is who is clothed in it says in verse six camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt, and I, I guarantee he didn't have a nice you know brass buckle on it. He wore this around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. 
This is a, a specific look of a prophet, and, it, and it's associated with a specific prophet, actually, in the Old Testament, Elijah. Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8 as wearing this exact outfit. And so for centuries, it was understood that Elijah was, was a prophet that, that called Israel back to their God, that challenged the people of Israel to repent and turn from their gods, and that before what was referred to as the great day of the Lord, one like Elijah would come again. The prophet Malachi Chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great, awesome day of the Lord. And then 400 years later, all, all those telling the story of Jesus, they, they pick up on this. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 to 14, he writes, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So pay attention to this guy. The angel Gabriel, when he was speaking to John's father before his birth, he quotes Malachi chapter 4. He says in Luke chapter 1 verse 17, And he will go before him, and John will go before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now why did they refer to this text? Because that is what the people were expecting. This is what the children of Israel were waiting for with bated breath to see someone like Elijah in the desert. It's not by mistake that people showed up from all over Judea excited about this. If you are, if you're my age, we don't need to mention what it is, you'll get an idea. And you were a Star Wars fan. You'll, you'll remember when The Phantom Menace came out. It was 1999. It had been 16 years since the last installment of Star Wars, Return of the Jedi. And every Star Wars fan who had been waiting and was a true fan knew that at the beginning of the movie, there would be this, this statement. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And, and there would be this moment of waiting right after that statement as it just kind of froze there for a second, for about five seconds of silence as you waited because you knew what was coming next. And simultaneously, Star Wars would appear on the screen and the wonderful John Williams music, dun, 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 dun. and that moment, for those waiting for, for an Elijah-like figure, John is the end of that wait. That, that wait for a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and that pause. And then the music starting. John is the end of that pause left by Malachi 400 years earlier. The long-awaited day has arrived and we are called to choose. The problem is, for, for, for many, John does not come looking like a royal herald. He comes in humility. And in, a lot, in the same way that maybe the movie Phantom Menace let down a bunch of Star Wars fans... Maybe the way John came kind of was not what people were expecting because he comes and he calls for humility. He calls for it in the very way that he himself lives his life. He's dressed in a stark contrast to how many of the religious leaders of his day would have been dressed. He, it was a life unlike the luxury that many relig religious leaders in his day enjoyed. There was no fine food. There were no silk sheets for John, if you've seen the show The Chosen and they show the 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 rabbis and the the Pharisees walking through the streets and everybody stops and bows their head. This this is not what John was looking for, at least not for himself. It was the life he lived was in dire contrast to how the religious leaders of his day were dressed. They were dressed in a way that told you that they were somebody. But notice John's 
humility, even as he is the one in all of history to proclaim the arrival and the day of the this important day of the Lord. And I would pose this question, how are you and I dressed when we talk about Jesus? Are we dressed as those who have it all together, those who have a, a, a spirituality so high that no one else has a chance of meeting it, or with the humility that says, I, I have no rights here. I am nothing but a camel hair wearing locust eater. I come in complete submission. How many of our famous Christian pastors these days with their mega churches, their, their 2 million Instagram followers, fall into a, a, a similar category as John? As John the Baptist is recorded as saying in John 3.30, speaking of Jesus, he says, I, He must increase, but I must decrease. John wants all eyes off of him and onto Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even as, even as he's given the honor of pointing out Jesus to the crowd, the final Old Testament prophet who, who forget about all these puzzle pieces and this confusion, trying to figure out where the Messiah is going to be and when he's going to come, John gets to physically point his finger at Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 7, it says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Man, today John would be told he, he has low self-esteem. No, he just had a healthy understanding of who he was and who Jesus was. Catch the difference between that and the way often Christianity is promoted today. For a long time, we've promoted our gain in following Jesus rather than our sacrifice. We've we've offered Christianity as kind of a, a, with a gloss rather than allowing it to expose our wounds. See, the desert clarifies a lot of things. You can't be dressed too fancy when you go out to the desert. You get your priorities straight. And that's why so many of us don't like it. It exposes a lot. We, we think there's only death out there. But I'll tell you, we may hate the desert, but that is where spiritual life grows. That is where God does some of his best work. It's the pattern of scripture that sacrifice comes before gain. And it's a pattern we see in, in Jesus who submits to a baptism that surely was unnecessary for any sin that he had committed or, or any repentance he needed, but that unified him with the human predicament. Jesus in his baptism says to you and I, I am with you. There's nowhere you're going to go that I, I will not go with you. But here's something we need to keep our eye on as well. And this is the stuff that, I'll be honest, it makes me geek out, this last section we're looking at. And I fall in love with the storytelling God that we worship. What he does, the way that the gospel writers recognize it. There is so much going on. And I would say that the desert is where God creates new life. And this is, we have to grab this in this text today. The desert is where God creates new life. There is there's something about Jesus that we need to keep in mind because it was definitely in the mind of Mark as he wrote this gospel. So think of Jesus as a new perfect Israel. Jesus was the new Israel, the new, better, perfect, sinless representation of God to the world, his true son on earth. In the past, God had actually referred to Israel as his son. In Exodus 4.22, uh, God is speaking to Moses and telling him what to say to Pharaoh. He says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God had also called Israel a nation of priests, a, a bridge between God and humanity in Exodus 19.6. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
set apart for the purposes of God. Priests, those who are who are meant to be a bridge between humanity and God. And so many things that were asked of Israel, but ignored by them or difficult for them to pull off or, or failure after failure, including looking out for the poor and showing mercy. They will now be met with complete obedience in the person of Jesus. Now, if baptism is a symbol of salvation and saying goodbye to, to what is behind you and moving forward, which is what repentance is, is walking into a new way of thinking and seeing the world. Think of, can you think of any situation in the history of Israel that Jesus is mimicking as he goes into baptism? Leaving the past behind, moving into a new salvation with all the promises of God before you, leaving slavery behind. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm laying it on pretty thick. A new life where Israel could say God has seen us. He's loved us. He, he has actively pursued us. Well, that's the Red Sea. That's the walking through the Red Sea. Notice what happens to Jesus after He's baptized. It, it, it's interesting. Along with the, the proclam proclamation that Jesus is God's beloved son, we also see an interesting phrase in verse 10 of Mark 1. It says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, th that might just kind of go past us or over our heads, but it's very interesting that in the Jewish Targums, which were written in Aramaic, which would have been for many, Jesus probably himself and many others, the, the version of Hebrew scriptures that they were reading, they were basically Jewish interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures, but written in Aramaic. The, the description of God's power hovering over the waters in Genesis 1.12 at the time of creation was to say, not simply that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, but to say this in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovered like a dove over the face of the waters. See, Mark knows what he's doing here. There, there's an understanding that, that God is doing a new kind of thing, like he did at creation. A new kind of creation or a recreation is in the works. And as we come to the, the end of this, this text today, we, we see that Jesus goes into the wilderness. So he's already come out to the Jordan, which is kind of out from society. But then he goes even further out into the wilderness. In verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him. Literally, it's cast him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So this Spirit of God hovering like a dove, as God the Father blesses him, we, it's kind of like we see the whole Trinity showing up for this, for, for this new creation, and then places him in a situation similar to the situation faced by the first humans, by Adam and Eve, where, where he was tempted, it says. For how long? 40 days. Does that sound familiar? Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And we don't need to spend more more time than Mark does on this. The actual temptations are not what's important to Mark. He, he knew that his readers knew that Jesus resisted Satan. He's doing something else quite beautiful here. I think what is important to Mark is the fact that it was the Spirit of God that casts or drives Jesus out. Do you, do you remember following the account of creation in Genesis and the fall of man, who the Spirit of God cast Adam and Eve out into the wilderness? Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden into the wilderness for, for disobedience. So Jesus goes into the wilderness almost as if to take back what Satan stole. It's almost like big brother has come and your tricks won't work here, Satan. Satan is a footnote to Mark. 
But that's not all. <laughs> There's more here. You, you see, who who is Jesus hanging out with out in the wilderness? Do you see it? Animals and angels, beasts and angels. One of the, the fallouts from Adam and Eve's deception, the fall of creation, was a, a breaking down of the, the relationship between humanity and the creation that we were blessed with. This, this line between the spiritual realm and the physical realm became more defined. The boundary between humanity and the creation gifted us by our creator broke down as a result of sin as well. But, but here in this new creation that Jesus is bringing and representing, we have everyone hanging out together. What This is quite a camping trip. Uh, a camping trip where the new Adam and animals and angels are all hanging out. See, the wilderness is not rejection. The Spirit of God sent Jesus there. He's sending him into something new. And John was inviting those who were ready to to press pause on the noise of life for a while and meet him in the desert and see that God was doing something, calling us to repentance and aligning our, our hearts and minds with the God of all things. Some of us have have followed Jesus for years, we would say that our allegiance has been firm. We know who Jesus is. We know the stories. We can say where they're found. But we're still unwilling to visit the desert to cut out the noise, the lights, the agenda. We figured out how to make Jesus submit to our schedule more than we have submitted to his. That, that Maybe just a, a Sunday morning glimpse is, is enough to suffice for us. You know, many of those who walked daily with Jesus for three years, face to face, shoulder to shoulder, still did not know who he was, still did not call him son of God. That at the end of the Gospels, as Jesus is ascending into heaven in in Matthew, it says that some of them still doubted. And we like to judge with our, you know, 2000 years distance and say we would be different, but They missed it because they were victims to the same kind of blindness that afflict us. Agendas, demands of Jesus, difficulty in obeying his demands on our life, that we, we fail to see who he really is and where we can truly find him. And one of the problems of our day, and I would say in our spiritual lives, is an unwillingness to step into the desert. We have too many connections but I would say one of the greatest responses to this message today, to the, the Spirit of God, would be to carve out time in our lives for quiet and for reflection, to meet Him in the desert, to have enough quiet carved into our lives, to hear ourselves and to hear God. I think we missed the importance of solitude. We've kind of put it on the shelf in the history of, of Christian spirituality and disciplines. It's always been a spiritual practice of the faithful. We don't like the idea of being alone with ourselves, so we we don't like the idea of solitude. But solitude is not about being alone. It's about being alone with God and for the purposes of pursuing Him and obeying Him. It's about walking out in the desert and asking the important questions. Where are our allegiances? It's a practice that should be a fundamental act of our Christian faith and our Christian health. In his book, Courage and Calling, uh, a book that I would suggest I think all 20-somethings, maybe 30-something, well, just maybe all of us should should read. Uh, Gordon Smith writes this. He says, Solitude is the emotional and spiritual place where we give our unqualified and undivided attention to the one who calls us. 
The prayer of solitude is the prayer of conversation. It's the place of honesty before God and the place of the open heart, of responsiveness to the prompting of the Spirit. There are, there are times, I mean, let's be honest, there are times in every Christian life where there is a sense of aloneness in our faith. A time where, as C.S. Lewis, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but basically talks about we, we approach God and we call out for Him and all we hear is the door of heaven being closed and locked from the inside. We, All of us, if we've been Christians long enough, have, have felt that. There, there are times that there's a sense that our faith is, is difficult and God seems far off. But I will promise you this. If we are not practicing solitude in our life, a difficult faith is guaranteed. I think in this text, it, there's an invitation to deeper relationship in the desert, in solitude, in, in pressing pause. But it, it means taking charge of the order of our lives, about what has the, the, the helm of our hearts, what, what, what is steering, because solitude does not happen by accident. And, and when solitude does happen by accident, whether waiting in the car or waiting in the line, what do we do with it? We fill it with, with iPhones and Netflix. So very practically, just before I close this off and pray, I want you to, to kind of look over your week. And maybe you're someone who, who practices solitude, and so maybe I'm not talking to you. But I want you to, to look over your week and I want you to pick three times minimum in your week where you can make space for solitude, maybe just a half an hour for a walk. You don't need to take your Bible. You don't need to listen to worship. You don't need to say anything. You just need to to go for a walk and just expose yourself before God. Just expose your heart and mind for his spirit. And so maybe right now you just need to allow the the, the Spirit of God to kind of peek over your shoulder as you think through your agenda and point out a few spots and say, hey, that, that spot will work right there, won't it? Maybe God wants to drive you into the wilderness for something better than you will ever find in your agenda. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you that you are not done with us. But I pray you'd remind us that sanctification, Christian maturity... Uh, a nurturing of our allegiance to you and living out our Christian worldview. Th these aren't things that happen by accident. This takes real work and it, it takes uh, communing with you on a regular basis. And so, Father, I, I, we all understand what it means to, to walk through, through difficulty. But I pray the difficulty we experience in our faith would not be a result of our neglect of communing with you our neglect of solitude. Thank you that you are a God who reached out to us first. You are a relational God. You are a God who reveals himself. And I pray that we would respond by meeting you in the desert. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.